Hello and welcome to another episode of I Love This You Should Too. My name is Radio Indy Randawa. With me is Sam Buggin' Out He's, <laughs> and we are presenting to you this lovely podcast on the movie Do the Right Thing, a Spike Lee joint from 1989. <laughs> How's it going, Sam? Good, how are you? Oh, you sounded like you were going to cry. <laughs> no, my voice is just, um, to our listeners, I've been at a cheer competition all weekend, so I am pretty much done in the voice department. So I'm sorry, I'm going to try and drink a little bit on the side here and get it going again but is that why you drink beers for your voice <laughs> i drink it for my voice what are you drinking today uh i am drinking the brewster's hawaiian coconut porter on my very adamant recommendation i really like this beer i thought it's a nice creamy beer it should be good for my throat no creamy stuff is the exact opposite of what you want to drink for speaking it's just like soothing my throat oh okay. not so like, i'm not gonna be like an opera singer you're gonna coat that throat in nice Creamy beer. <laughs> yeah, it's the dream. So, Brewsters, let's get this out of the way before we start yes, our podcast. Brewsters. I underrate them every time. I had one of their Reversity Raspberries while we were kind of organizing our notes, and like they don't have a bad beer. They do great work, but I. I think because they're not one of those like hip new microbreweries, we don't think of them as being as good as they are. But they have a huge selection, great rotating and seasonal yes. stuff. They always have interesting stuff. Even if it's not quite like our taste, mm -hmm. it, it's always good. There's always at least a few things there for everyone. Yes. And I, um, I think they get lost behind the fact that they look like a sports bar. Yeah, because it's more of it's a chain. It's a chain. It's not quite a microbrewery. They have it's like the big the TVs. Yeah. yeah, they're very much like, oh, come here and watch sports. But then they make incredible beer as well. So I think that kind of gets lost because it's not a tiny little hole in the wall brewery. It's not super hip, but man, good beer. Good beer. Very underrated. Very. Okay, now let's get into okay. the rest of what we're going to talk about. <laughs> so. I had recommended to you that we watch the movie Do the Right Thing, and it's kind of our Black History Month pick. Yeah. And uh, let me set the stage for you a little bit. 1989, the number. Another summer. Sound of the funky drummer. <laughs> Music hitting your heart, because I know you got soul. Oh my god, I need to work harder on my intros. No, do you remember? That, those are the lyrics to Yeah, to yeah, I know. It's just... more like, 1989, yeah. the number. Another, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do a Chuck D, though. No. That voice. <laughs> Is it like my voice? No, he has a very uh, robust yeah, voice, Yeah, he does, actually. He has a sense of uh, urgency in his voice, but it's a very full... It doesn't sound like so out of place, but it is quite unique when you really think about it. It's a hard one to imitate. Interesting. But we'll save that for our public enemy You podcast. did a pretty good job of imitating it. No, that wasn't it. I was like all kind of like raspy. He's more like, <laughs> he's down here a little bit. It's like, 1989, the number. Oh, yeah. Not okay. the summer. Like that, maybe. Continue. No, thank you. <laughs> so, do the right thing. Yes. You saw it for the first time. I love this movie. Did you? Um, I really liked it. Oh. I did. Um, I'm a little surprised, actually. It was like one of those movies that I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it when we were watching it, but then mm -hmm. I kind of reflected on it because we watched it a couple nights ago. So I had some time to kind of reflect on it and some of the themes and kind of like go over it in my head again. So yeah, so I took some time to kind of think about it and um, I came to the conclusion that I actually really liked this movie. Well, let's start off then when you just watched it or even while you were watching it, what were you feeling then? I felt like 
it was a different kind of, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I felt like it was kind of a different kind of structure of movie than I'm used to. Yeah. And I think we can't, we often kind of get into this of like the right or wrong, or we're trying to convince the other person and like your idea is wrong. But I think we get to get more into like just talking about stuff. Yeah. The whole premise of this show originally was to be like, you can have incredibly different tastes and hate what the other person loves and still <laughs> yes. love that person. And then we kind of do our things on movies like Gone with the Wind and we forget about that and we just start even studying. <laughs> but it's the thing. I can hate Gone with the Wind. You can love it. That doesn't matter. No, it doesn't I matter. was actually expecting you to not like this one. Oh, interesting. And then I was planning on saying like, well, these things are great in it. So even if you hate it, I think it is important stuff. When we first watched it, I felt a little bit like I did when I was watching Joker. And I was like, is there something that I am missing here? Because mm-hmm. I felt like I just I wasn't getting the big picture of it. Like I enjoyed all the little things that happened in it. Like I enjoyed the characters. I thought the interactions were cool. I enjoyed the different places that they were in like during the movie. And like I thought I understood the plot. But then at the same time, I was like, I feel like... Like nothing's happening. Like nothing's happening, yeah. Yeah, Or like that I missed a part. Like I felt like I missed a really vital part of this But then once you see the ending. But then once I see the ending and I had time to kind of sit and like kind of percolate on it, it was really obvious to me that it was just a different kind of movie that I'm used to seeing and I I ended up really liking it. First of all, you should all just go watch this movie. If you haven't, you didn't do your homework. It's really an important movie and I think everyone should see it because it's so pertinent to today. If this movie just had slightly different clothes, not even that because like those early 90s late Some 80s of that clothes are coming right really back. in, yeah. So those like long spandex bike shorts. Oh, there's so many there's things so in this. I was like, "Oh yeah, people are wearing in, that yeah. again." You should definitely watch this movie. It's, if nothing else, even if you don't think it's a good, well-constructed movie, which I argue it definitely is, it's a super important movie. And I think really everyone should see it. But in case you haven't, do you want to do a little synopsis of what happens? I don't know that I can. Because, again, I feel like there were parts of this movie that I didn't really... I felt like I missed some stuff. So maybe it's better if you do it. Sure. Well, I think... It's not that you missed things, but when I go over this, we'll see that the plot really isn't what this movie's about. Exactly, yeah. So it takes place in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, hottest day of the year. We follow Mookie, played by Spike Lee. He works for Sal at the pizzeria. We get to meet lots of different characters, but really the basis of this movie comes down to there's a character named Buggin' Out. He's very angry that at Sal's pizzeria, or pizzeria, as Sal says, Pizza. pizzeria. There are no black people on his wall of fame. It's all Italian Americans. And Sal says, that, "Like, well, it's my place. When you have your place, you can do what you want." Right. Bugging out tries to organize a boycott of Sal's because it's in a predominantly black neighborhood, black and Hispanic. And then Radio Rahim joins up with Bugging Out. There is an act of violence where Sal smashes the titular radio that Radio Rahim carries with him. Mm-hmm. It breaks out in a fight. Radio Rahim tries to strangle Sal. The police come and they end up killing Radio Rahim. Because of that, a crowd forms and ultimately Mookie, who had worked for Sal, throws a garbage can through the window of the pizzeria and the neighborhood people burn it down. Yes, and it, it kind of incites a riot. 
But really, that doesn't begin to describe what this movie is about. No, not at all. Which is why I felt like you needed to do it because I just wouldn't even have known. Where because to you get into all of these relationships and you want to talk about yeah. each character. And there's a lot of side characters. There's in so this. many. Everyone's a side character, yeah. really. Yeah, it is a very different structure. I almost took it most like a Shakespearean play is what it's closest to. Actually, it's a very good way to put it. And the camera kind of lends itself to this, too, because we're often just wandering through the streets of this neighborhood. The camera is so mobile in this, and I love the camera work. Yeah. It sometimes goes through windows and screens and follows onto the street and follows the character around. There are shots in this movie done in 1989 without any computer effects that I legitimately don't know how they did that. I don't know how they got a camera through there. Interesting. It's. I think it must be a mix of both practically moving the camera through there and also using a huge zoom to make you think that you're on the street oh, when so you're, like you're still moving, in. Yeah. But either way, there's some really interesting stuff that way. And that mobile camera really gives you a sense of the space because it all takes place one day in this one neighborhood. And it also shows you how intrinsically linked all of these characters are. Like, the setting and the people are virtually interchangeable. They are the neighborhood and the neighborhood is them. So when you're walking through with this camera and seeing everyone just kind of going about their business, you really get a sense of of a community more than anything. Yes, absolutely. I like your description of it as, like, almost Shakespearean because there's, like, a lot of microplots going on that don't. And I think this is why I was a little bit confused, was they don't really have a lot to do with the overarching kind of feeling of the movie. No, it's more just to set up these characters and give you a sense of who they are. And that's what's most important, is all of these people to really feel like you know them, and it feels honest when you see where they go. And it is really Shakespearean, the more I think about it, because you have um, Demare played by Ossie Davis, Mm -hmm. who is kind of an old drunk, and he's like the fool character. Yes. And for those of you who are not big Shakespeare nerds like a lot of us are, uh, the fool character is always someone who's of lower social standing. And because of this, we often overlook the truths that they speak. And that's definitely Demare. Absolutely. Because he's probably really the guy that has it the most together for what he talks about, at least. He's not Mm -hmm. living that life, but he knows what what people should be doing. Yeah, and he ends up kind of almost being the wisest of everyone. Oh, definitely. Which is very much like Shakespeare's Fool, right? Yeah. Like, he ends up kind of knowing what's going on before everyone else does. And he very much is trying to tell people throughout the entire movie, like, don't disrespect me. I've watched you all grow up. Mm-hmm. I know who you are. I know what your people are. Like, I've Oh, known- he's the one who says the line. Yeah. Do the right thing. Exactly, yeah. And it's just very interesting that he gets no love throughout the entire movie mm-hmm. and it's really well at the end maybe poignant. there's a little bit where the, little bit, um, him yeah. and mother sister yeah mother sister i like that whole interaction so maybe you are not familiar with these characters it's ruby d and ossie davis and they are a real life couple they're married are they? and they made a few movies together i think i think they both passed away since but yeah oh, they were a married couple sad. who made movies together so that's pretty awesome and they look like they just have chemistry. Yeah, they they looked like the people in the movie. Like, you know how sometimes in, like, a romantic comedy or something, the two most attractive people end up together? Mm-hmm. They were the two most, like, almost, like, age-appropriate. And you just want them to like, be together. Like, you just want them to be together. And it seems so much like they should be together mm-hmm. just because, like, they have the same kind of look. They're of the same age. They're very much, like... And they have that natural chemistry, which is... They have that is natural chemistry because they're married. Life. Yeah. yeah. 
Also, now that I think about it, you know, there's those three guys that are just sitting along the red wall all the time. Yes. They're kind of like your watch from Much Ado But Nothing, that they're wisecracking, they're comedic relief, but then they also have a little bit of satire and truth through them, yeah. too. Yeah. Maybe they're more like a Greek chorus, actually. I was going to say Greek the watch chorus, is the Greek or chorus, like the right? witches, or yes. like, yeah. yeah, they're very much like overarching of the story. Like, they're able to kind of say some things about everybody. Well, there's so much to talk about. Maybe we should start right at the beginning. So like our last movie, uh, Gone with the Wind, this movie also starts with an overture, but in a very different way. It does. So we have Rosie Perez, who is dancing to fight the power. What do you think of that? Um, My notes were dancing during the opening credits, so much dancing. It is very long. (laughs) It just like, I admire her. She was a very good dancer. Mm -hmm. But um, I was like, wow, this is a very long dance scene. Um, But I liked her. I enjoyed the dance. I thought it was very um, like of the the feeling, like it did get you in the feeling, just like the overture in Gone with the Wind. It very much like got you in the idea of like, this is an orchestra, it's a grand sweeping thing. Um, whereas this with her dancing and she looks a little angry in it too. Yeah, it's so super it was, confrontational. It was very much like getting you in the mood of like the setting of Brooklyn during this time. And like what it feels like. Yeah, it's not a sexy dance or anything like this. At times, she's actually wearing boxing gloves and literally fighting. But it's to fight the power. And it gets you yeah, definitely set up in that confrontational mood that this movie is going to have. Because this movie maybe has like more yelling than any movie ever. <laughs> There's so much yelling. There's this is one of, of the loudest movies around. Absolutely. It's... Not in the sense like of those action movies where everything, there's all these loud effects. But this movie, there's so much of people shouting over each other, shouting over music. It's just constant. It's a, it's a barrage at times. Mm. It could be a tiring movie to watch, I imagine. I, I would imagine that, yeah. Um, I generally don't like a lot of shouting or like a lot of loudness in a movie, but it felt very appropriate for this movie. Yeah, because that's, that's what this movie's about. I think one of my least favorite things in movies is um, when it's like like an action movie, for instance, and everything is just like three times louder than it needs to be just to make a point that like cars are crashing yeah. and it needs to be at like a 100 decibel level. And it's just like... And then the dialogue's so quiet. And then the dialogue's so quiet. And I'm like, why does everything that crazy that happens need to be so loud? Like, I get it. I can see the cars crashing. Mm-hmm. This isn't like a descriptive movie for the blind. Like, I can see everything that's happening. It doesn't need to be so loud that I jump every time it happens. But lazy sound mixing. A very lazy sound mixing. <laughs> um, but this felt appropriate that there was a lot of yelling because it was a very, like you said, confrontational thing. Yeah, watching this again, it really brought back a lot to me and things that I kind of forgot about. I forgot how big of a Spike Lee fan I was at a really early age. Really? Because I knew last episode I was saying, oh, I really like clockers and things like that. But when those movies were coming out, I was like 12 years old and watching Spike Lee movies. I actually have this home video of uh, me and my friend. We're messing around with the camcorder. Galen. Yep. Hi, Galen. Hey, Galen. <laughs> and uh, we we're just doing silly stuff. And I said, look, I have the camera, so I'm not in it. But I say, look at me. I'm Spike Lee. And I take the camera and I come, I'm like running with it, going out a door and following him around. <laughs> and at that early of an age, his style was... Was that unique? Was that impactful that I remembered it and was able to like pick up on it and mimic it? Interesting. Also at the time, because I, for people who can't see me, which is 
all of you. Everyone. I'm of uh, <laughs> Indian descent, and I knew I wasn't going to see Indian people in movies. I, that I kind of assumed, but seeing non-white people was kind of like, it was just cool to me because it's, you know, it's as close as I felt like I could get to seeing myself on screen. Yeah. So then these characters, like, I kind of was able to identify with them with a lot of Spike Lee movies because... He is a really multicultural cast here, right? He and does. that's not something that I was seeing anywhere else. So I was a really big fan of his at a really early age. And I kind of forgot about that. But watching this and thinking about all of his other work really, uh, really brought me back to being Aww. a kid and seeing what this movie meant to me. And yeah, I was also super political as a kid. <laughs> like in my uh, in my bedroom, I the posters I had on my wall were... Uh, uh, Patrick Waugh, who's mm-hmm. a goalie for the Montreal Canadiens. Yes. He's a big fan. I'm familiar. Um, Charles Barkley. Yeah. The power forward for the Phoenix Suns at the time. And Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Interesting. Those were like the, the people I had up on my wall. And yeah, Spike Lee movies definitely felt like they were for me. So a lot of things don't feel like they're for you always, mm-hmm. right? And these ones did. I, I forgot how much I liked this movie. I brought it up because we were talking about Black History Month and I wanted some different representation. I forgot how good it was. I honestly thought I was going to say this is like a six, seven out of ten movie. It's good. It has important themes and that's what we should talk about. But now watching, like, it's a good movie. It is a good movie. It's so well done and I've forgotten about that. So I'm I'm super happy that we watched it again. It's been a while since I've watched a movie that really, like, that I kind of sat with and really thought about and, like, came away with a different kind of end thought than when I was actually watching it. Mm-hmm. So that's all movies that I watch and I'm like, wow, I really like that. That was a really good movie. And then you kind of move on and you don't really think about it for a long period of time. But this was one that I thought about for two days. Yeah, I think that's the difference between a good movie and maybe an impactful movie. Yeah. yeah. This movie elicits change. It elicits thought, if nothing else. It very else. much does, yeah. And it's I'm impressed that I like thought about it for two days because I've had a very busy two days. Yeah. So I'm like, I was actually sitting and thinking about it, even though I was super busy and I could have just been totally wrapped up in what I was doing. But this movie like stuck with me enough that I was like thinking about it in like my off moments and kind of like still kind of thinking about it and coming up with thoughts and kind of debating with myself and that kind of thing. So it was, uh, it was a good movie. Do you want to share some of those thoughts with us? Yeah. Um. It's like a couple of random things. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about this story was um, the correlation between kind of the neighborhood's tensions and the increase of heat in the weather. Yeah, let's talk about the heat. Okay. <laughs> so I could almost like it's winter here um, and I could really imagine it being like 110 degrees or whatever it was in Brooklyn that day and I could feel it it was very much they did enough like subtle acting and you know the fans and how much they were all sweating and like it really kind of set you in the scene yeah it's done in quite a few different ways and you definitely feel it so first off Every character at the beginning of the movie, the first thing they talk about is how hot it is. Like, oh, be careful. It's going to be really hot out because it's in the morning at at the beginning. And anytime you see a new character, they reference like it's it's so hot out. Mm -hmm. And at first, at times that could be like annoying. But then you realize when it is that hot out, that is all everyone talks about. And that gets annoying too. Oh, very much. And if you look at the colors of the movie too, 
there is pretty much nothing blue in this whole movie. Do you notice that? No. The police wear blue and that's it. Because that's a cool color. Uh, They're trying to get the heat. There's a lot of red, a lot of like hot pink. Yeah, if you look at the inside of cells, it's almost like it's sepia toned because mm-hmm. it's so like orangey and warm. Yeah. There's those red walls. And how often do you see bright red walls? But everything in this movie is bright red. Lots of neon. Yeah. A lot of things that I would describe as kind of hot colors, right? Like. There's hardly any greens as well. It's just the trees. All of the blues and greens have been taken out of this. They even have like heat lamps underneath the camera so you kind of get those heat waves going on right so you can yeah. visually see the heat they're using everything they can to try to convey it to us and i liked that like yes they did talk about it all the time but you could feel it you could feel it throughout the movie even when they weren't talking about it and everyone is just so on edge because of the heat yes. right so it makes it more believable when eventually these characters snap on each other mm-hmm. well first they're snapping just kind of like in little ways and then of course we get that really big one yes and it feels like everything is at that point, like a literal boiling point. Yes. Like things are boiling over. The and that's what I, it so was like much. a slow boil at the beginning and it got like crazy at the end. And then the second day in the movie, they said, oh, it's going to be another hot one, possibly hotter than yesterday. And it's just like, how much hotter can it get? And then how much crazier can the tension get? And then at what point does it break? Do you want to hear my big theory? I do want to hear your big theory. I love your big theories. The heat is the metaphor for racism. Yes, I agree. That was the point I was trying to make. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, awesome. Then you, you start, and then I'll come in. Um, My points are never as well thought out as no, yours. No, but... I think you give yourself more credit. Okay. Uh, so I feel like you were t- saying at the beginning of this that, um, and I agree with you, that this is a very poignant movie for now. And I feel like with a lot of the things that have been happening all over the world, but like I'm going to use the states as like a as a yeah, it's an, an American example. movie, yeah. Um, just because yeah, this is set in Brooklyn, but with a lot of the police shootings and with violence against like minorities and that kind of thing, it's still very much a thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. And I could totally see this being set now. And I really, I think that's one of the things that I thought mostly about was how throughout the movie it just grows and grows and grows and grows until something crazy happens. And that is totally something that we see happening now. Yeah, and I think the heat and directly standing as a metaphor for racism in that it's ever-present. It's coloring everything, in this case, like, literally. Literally, yeah. And it's affecting everyone. Yes. And that's what this movie does great. It's a movie that deals with race relations, but it's not one group is good and one group is bad. One group is the oppressor, one group is oppressed. One group is racist and the other is victims. It gets everyone. Yes. Pretty much everyone in this movie is racist to some degree. Yeah. We'll talk about that more later, but... and I kind of agree with the fact that, like, I've heard people say that, like, everyone's racist. Like, mm-hmm. even if you don't think you are. Like, there are parts of you that you might not even acknowledge that, like... It's like family teachings, right? Like, this is just how my parents acted and I saw them do that, so I kind of took on that without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, everybody's a little... I can't remember what... There's a musical where one of the songs is everyone's a little bit racist. I think I think it's Avenue Q, but I will fact check that. Um, but yeah, it's like, everyone just has it kind of in their blood. And if you identify really strongly with a certain culture, you're gonna have some kind of racial problem in your life. And then also, linking it to the heat... It's that one little thing that's always under the surface and the thing that's able to put people over the edge. 
So maybe Sal doesn't snap if it's not so hot. Yeah. Maybe Sal doesn't snap if he doesn't have that little bit of racism in him. Maybe bugging out doesn't make a big deal if it's so hot. Maybe he doesn't make a big deal if he wasn't racist himself. It's that one little thing that takes annoyance and turns it into rage. The heat and the racism both are interchangeable in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it just takes the right amount of something to make it boil to the top. I just want to jump back for a second. Last episode, I was talking about the reviews for this movie, but I said, well, we'll save it. And how it was received at Cannes. I'm interested to know that. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival to very mixed reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert famously loved it and has some of the best reviews ever about this. He says he's um, only in his life been affected by like three movies this much. And he said he cried in it and he said it was like the biggest wake up call and something that everyone needs to see. But that wasn't the prevailing theory. So since it wasn't a major release yet, there was so much protest saying that this is going to incite riots. People are going to riot if they see this movie, and they pushed the studio to move it to a winter release, saying if this is in summer, people are going to go out and they're going to burn the theater down, they're going to start an all-out race war. And that's not like one person on Fox News saying that. Mm. This was people in so many big newspapers doing their reviews. Huh. I'm surprised that Ebert thought it was so great. I, I don't know. I just, I've always known him as kind of a, a crotchety down on certain films kind of guy. So I think it's really interesting to hear him loving something because maybe I haven't like read anything that he's like super loved. Um, I agree with all of those things that you said. All of the things that those reviews said? Yeah, I, I find them all really interesting the way that the movie was kind of perceived by different people. Because I could see this being a movie that is like very much based on your background, on how much you like it. I almost get the exact opposite. Oh, really? We feel like, for whatever reason, we will probably get into it at some point, movies by a minority group, whether it's a movie with gay leads, whether they're black, Mm -hmm. whether they're Asian, those are marketed as, if it has black characters, it's a black movie. If it has gay characters, it's a gay movie. And I could complain about that for for many hours. But I think this one is the most even-handed and fair movie to everyone. That that's what this is different. And if you're dismissing it as, oh, this is a black movie, this is a movie about racism, it's so reductive to what it is. Because it's a movie about humanity, right? Mm -hmm. It's about how everyone is essentially the same. It's the exact opposite of those types of movies that try to separate people. And I feel like all of those reviews that said, well, this is going to cause riots, those people are at the very best missing the point Mm -hmm. and at the very worst straight out racist. Mm -hmm. Because Spike Lee himself said, like, you don't see anyone talking about a Schwarzenegger movie and being worried that all the white people are going to burn the town down because, well, they saw Schwarzenegger shooting a bazooka, so now we're going to go do it. Right. That conversation never happens. It's straight up racist that in a movie where there are people who are black and angry that we think so little of that community that we're going to say like, oh, they're going to riot. They don't have the wherewithal to separate what's on screen to what's reality. In reality, these 
film critics didn't have the wherewithal to see that this isn't a movie that promotes violence or incites anything like that. It's the exact opposite of that. It's a movie that promotes how similar everyone is, regardless of race. So that's kind of, I feel like we're kind of arguing a similar point or just like adjacent points here. We're not arguing, but I think that this is one of those movies that like, as long as you're not looking at it as like a black movie, like I use air quotes, but um, I think that if you looked at this just from the struggle between cultures, you could put any culture into each of those groups depending on where in the world you were to set this movie. And I kind of like that idea that, um, like, every culture has its struggles. And I think that every, you know, group of people living with, like, their own culture has another group that is, like, lives close to them or interacts with them on a daily basis and is very much, like oh, it's us against them, or, oh, we really hate when they do that. And, like, I feel like you could replace the black people in this cast and very much make it um, Hispanic people and someone else. Like, I think that you could very much see any group in place of the different kind of groups in this movie. Yeah, definitely. I have a little quote from an Ebert review. And he was talking about how many people were angry at Spike Lee. Like, there were so many reviews who were straight up saying, people are going to get murdered because of this, and it's Spike Lee's fault. Right. They straight out say that he is calling for a race war. It's not what it's about. Yeah, you don't... Yeah, you're missing the point. And also, I feel like if you are a minority filmmaker, if you're a black filmmaker, you have to be both speaking for the entire black experience and also teaching white audiences what they have to take away from this. And that's so unfair. And it's too much for any film to do to encapsulate everything like that. We don't look at any movie that has a white cast and say, that's the white experience. And this is what they're saying to us non-white people. Nobody else has that pressure on them. But that's how this was looked at. And everyone was saying that Spike Lee is calling for a call to arms. But uh, what Ebert said was, thoughtless people have accused Lee of being an angry filmmaker. He has much to be angry about, but I don't find it in his work. The wonder of Do the Right Thing is that he is so fair. Those who have found this film an incitement to violence are saying much about themselves and nothing useful about the movie. And then Ebert, he's got it. Yeah. He also has like so many other great things to say, but you can just go read that. We're not going to do the whole thing here. Can we talk about something that I found super uncomfortable in this movie? Please. The treatment of Smiley. Oh, that was rough, huh? Oh, my God. Every time. There's that one time when Mookie, like, yells at him, and I think Smiley starts to cry. There's a couple times where he cries. Oh, it, that was oh hard. Oh, my God. It, like turned my stomach like it was very much like i was physically uncomfortable watching it Mm -hmm. and i think that just comes from the fact that like that was the time and that's kind of how you treated people like that back then but i yeah it was very much um physically uncomfortable to watch were you tell me more about that like about the that was the time and that's what you did then i don't know 
I just feel like there's um, there was less respect for people or like less understanding of people who had like mental disabilities. Now, are you saying that the film itself dealt with it in like a not great way or if the characters? I think the characters. It's very different. Okay. I think it was the characters. And I think that that was just, like I said, of the time, like that would be how people would probably act if there was someone kind of in their neighborhood who was like that. There was moments of kindness towards him, but there was a lot of really, like, unkind moments. Well, I think the treatment of Smiley is like the treatment of everyone. Yes. It's a mixed bag because at one point Mookie yells at him, but at another point Mookie says, okay, like, yeah, I want to buy your picture. The same one picture that you sell every day. Yes. Which he probably has dozens of. He's already bought so many from. Probably, yeah. And Mookie even humors him a little bit more, saying, like, oh, no, not that one. I want that one. Yeah. Like, those little extra things. Uh, like, Sal... letting him kind of flip through them and show mm-hmm. him all of them, yeah. Bugging out, even, who is not a nice guy. No. Is super nice to Smiley. Yeah. Uh, Sal treats him with respect. And, the, yeah, they get frustrated with him at times. Yeah. But I feel like the treatment of Smiley is just like everyone else, that at times we're angry with them, but they're trying to do their best, I guess. I guess. I feel like they could have tried a little harder at best, but I understand with everything else that was going on in the movie, it might not have been. It's the hottest day of the year. Possible, yeah. And also think that there's one guy who's been selling you the same photo for, let's say, 10 years. At one point, and we'd be like, no, I don't want it. All right, leave me alone. Give me a minute here. (laughs) True. I like that there's no real heroes or villains in this. Like with the treatment of Smiley, it's all over the place. That's how everyone is. I feel like every character in this movie is a person and Mm -hmm. no one is in service of a message the writer and director is trying to say. Right. A lot of the times you know what the movie is about and you have a character who is promoting that idea, that through line, Mm -hmm. that major belief of the movie. Right. We don't have anyone championing a cause here, really. Like, people are looking out for themselves, but nobody really encapsulates what Spike Lee is trying to say. Even Spike Lee is in this movie. He doesn't do that. I think it's crazy that I knew that he played someone in the movie. I didn't realize it was the main character. Mm -hmm. And then I knew it was also done by him. So then I was thinking while we were watching it, I was like, did I just confuse, like, director and actor? Like, was I thinking that he was, like, an actor instead of the director? And then I'm like, no, but Spike Lee is the director, so he, like, must not be in it. And then I realized that Mookie was Spike Lee. Yeah. (laughs) It's, like, very confused by that. Because I didn't really know who Spike Lee was before this. Okay. I've heard of him because, like, it's... And we're going to have to watch Clockers <laughs> and Malcolm X and Black Klansman. He, he did yeah. a bunch of documentaries that were also really good, too. It's hard not to hear of Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's just like a like one of those household names like James Cameron. And like like just you've heard of them. You might not know exactly who mm-hmm. they are, but you've heard of them. So I didn't realize what he looked like. And I didn't realize that he was like the main character in the movie the entire time. And he is often regarded as being terrible really i don't get it like he gets he's the punchline of jokes about like oh what a bad filmmaker what and i i don't want to attribute everything to racism but like he does such good work and gets such a short leash when he does something bad everyone's like yeah well typical spike lee right and it's like no he's made so (laughs) many brilliant movies and when some other actor who's made that many movies does bad ones it's no big deal we just forget about that one but yeah the criticism of spike lee 
is problematic to say the least it really bothers me how often people talk about him as being a terrible filmmaker because i want to say like have you watched them i feel like you haven't i would not say he's a terrible filmmaker just having seen one of his movies but oh and i guess all the buzz around like black Klansman and like that kind of thing i have heard of some of his movies i just Mm -hmm. didn't make the connection that that was him that i watched for two hours and i guess he can be a pretty egotistical or maybe even abrasive person in real life Mm -hmm. so maybe that's coloring some of it but man look at every director they're all assholes well and it's like david o russell yells at lily tomlin how could you yell at lily tomlin (laughs) i feel like that's just part of being human it's like sometimes you just have a bad project Mm -hmm. you can't just always do good things nobody's magic except for magic johnson Okay, except for Magic Johnson. You ruined my point. (laughs) Nobody's Nobody's magic. magic. Nobody's magic. We all have bad projects sometimes. Wait, let's jump back a sec. So I was talking about how no character is in service of Spike Lee's message. The message comes through itself and every character feels like they bring like an entire lifetime of experience to this. I feel like they're all very fully realized. And even though I would agree that... Everything is heightened in this movie. It's not realist. Right, right, right. It's not a naturalistic movie. It's very, um, yeah, it's very heightened. The emotions are too much. The angry people are too angry. Right. Everything's up a level. And that's done with good reason. And I think it kind of encapsulates this whole uh, boiling over tension that we get throughout it as well. Interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I love the boiling over tension of this movie. I found it really enjoyable to watch. Maybe enjoyable is the wrong word, but I've liked the way that it worked within the movie. That makes that that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, I just feel like every character in this, even though they do have agendas, I don't feel like they are a tool to get that across. Yeah. Because their agendas are often flawed, just like the people are. Everyone in this movie bears the marks and scars of growing up as who they were. And you can really feel that in these characters. A lot of them are hateful people. Like, you get John Turturro's character. Pino or Vito? I get them mixed up there. Um, hang on. He's Pino, I think. John Turturro is the the racist. It's son. Pino, yeah. Vito is Richard Edson. Yes. Yes. Who I really like as well. I was like, but, I just uh, had it up. <laughs> but John Turturro is, he's a hateful person. But I also kind of get where he's coming from. Yeah. You don't feel like he is this... Uh, straight up villain character no usually in any movie if you have a racist character they're an over-the-top villain yes you don't have people who are fine but also they're kind of racist yeah we would love to believe that only terrible people are racist and that's what's in our movies because it's so much easier for us to put it it felt very situational in this movie yeah and he is someone who yeah is a bad guy in this movie but doesn't feel like he's all bad Mm mm-hmm He's not like the racist characters we get in a lot of movies that are like super villain-esque, right? Yes, absolutely. I liked that no one was the villain in this movie. It was very much like the reason why I didn't get the movie at first or why I thought Mm -hmm. I was missing something was because it was very much symbolic and it was very much kind of like an overarching feeling as opposed to someone being very evil, very, very evil. Yeah, it makes sense that no one is all the way one way. And that some are hateful, some are sympathetic, all are a mix of everything. 
And we have likable characters doing bad things. We right. have what we think are bad characters doing good things. And of course, that's how it is, because that's how the world is. So we would love for everything to exist in these good and bad and you one or the other, and that can work great. That's Star Wars, and that's brilliant. But that's not the real world. And this movie is a movie of this world. This is not a movie about idealism. It's presenting what the world is. I think it does present some solutions, some ideas, some hope. But it's not all good. It's not all bad, because that's how it is out there. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that made it feel very realistic was that it wasn't like a Bond movie where there's a villain. It's not good versus evil. It's like everyone's a racist to some degree. And this is kind of how it plays out. Even we could argue that maybe the cops are the bad guys because they they kill an innocent, innocent man. That happens, which is the most egregious thing in the movie, of course. Absolutely. But even when that happens, you have one of the cops going, stop, stop. That's enough. That's enough. Yes. And the other one just like uncontrollable. And that's the world. Because anytime you say something about against police brutality, people have to be like, well, there's good cops too. Yeah, not all cops are bad. We understand that. But the problem is that there are bad ones. Yes. It's not that all are. No. Not all of anyone is one way. I was just going to say, it's not like all cheerleaders are ditzy, like useless idiots. It's like some are. We joke every year that we have a team blonde, but it's like not every single one of them is a blonde. I concur. And then this idea of everyone being a mix of good and bad, of love and hate, it kind of goes out into the big overarching theme in the movie of love and hate. Right. right. So we have one of the images we see a lot is that picture that Smiley has of mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Right. Are you familiar with them? Not super familiar. Malcolm X was like a Muslim preacher minister i don't know what the term was but i think the biggest thing that we want to take away from why it's the two of them is if you could boil down both of them to one sentence right martin luther king jr is turn the other cheek and love right he's all about yes these things are happening to us we will march peacefully right yes there's fire hoses being turned on us we're not going to do anything bad to them we will love our enemy yes that's martin luther king malcolm x is by any means necessary. Oh. That was his his phrase. I did by not any know that. means necessary. So he was, I don't want to use the phrase promoting violence because he always talked about it as self-defense. If someone is coming after you with fire hoses, with attack dogs, if they are promoting genocide against you, are you really in the wrong in taking violent action against that? That was more of his thinking. Interesting. And that's reflected in those two quotes that we get at right. the end. Right, yes. And I don't think that could be simplified down to love and hate, but it's two very different sides of that same coin, right? Absolutely. And when we ever talk about an X-Men movie, we'll talk about them again, because <laughs> Magneto's Malcolm X and Professor X is, oddly enough, Martin Luther King. Interesting. That seems very backwards, but yes. <laughs> Just by names. Like, yes. I know. I know their characters are different, but... <laughs> So you have that duality, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Radio Rahim love and hate on his knuckle dusters. Right. Yes. That that was cool um, and seemed to fit very well with the feeling of the movie. So he has hate on his left hand. He has these uh, big knuckle dusters yes. or like hate kind of a, a four, love on the right. 
fingered ring, essentially what yes. it is. And he says, like, let me tell you the story of the right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hate with this hand that Cain iced his brother. And this is a speech directly taken from a movie called Night of the Hunter. Oh, interesting. And it's about a preacher who is also a murderer. And he has love and hate tattooed on both of his hands. Yeah. And Radio Rahim takes that speech. He changes it a little bit because he uses words like iced instead of killed or whatever right. it was. Radio Rahim, who is... We can just talk about him for a moment. Yeah, let's talk about Radio Rahim. Who is a character who is angry and full of hate, it seems like. It does. It does. It very much seems... It was He was kind of a hard read at first, um, but it does seem very much that he is full of hate and it is another... Full of anger, at least. Anger. Actually, anger is a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to just be bubbling below the surface and he seems to be a little bit like he's trying to contain it Mm -hmm. he's trying to use a sort of stoicism to mask like a rage that's under the surface stoicism is a very good word for it yeah because he you can see it on his face you can see it in his body language sometimes but he does try very hard through some parts of the movie to not unleash that on anybody yeah and you can see it in how he is shot he's often shot in a wide angle lens really close to him so everything is kind of distorted like his anger is distorting his world vision and kind of gives him that like tunnel vision which is what he has yes he himself lets loose a bit of a racist tirade against the Korean grocery store owners, right? He does, yes. Like, D, motherfucker, D! I need 20 D batteries! Do you speak English? Like, yes, he does that whole thing. it's very much, yeah. And that's what I'm saying, like, every group in this movie or every character in this movie has some kind of racial, some kind of racism approach to another minority. Yeah, and if you... Nobody's innocent in this movie. No, no, definitely not. There's no heroes and villains no. in this movie. Um, so if you watch this movie and say like, well, this is racist against my group, look at yourself. But anyways, um, Radio Rahim is often shot in that low angle as well to make him look larger than big. life. He, He's I was not a huge, say... huge guy, Bill Nunn. He's a big guy, but they made him look gigantic because they're always shooting from, from well below him. And then when he does get angry, we get those Dutch angles. Do you want to remember back to episode one, Dutch angle? No. A Dutch angle is when the camera is off kilter and oh, things are yeah, diagonal, yeah, yeah. and it just makes you feel uh, not at ease, right. which they use a lot in this movie. They do. Spike Lee's a big fan of that. In this one. Well, everything is just kind of over the top in this movie. But again, even Radio Rahim, who is this seemingly rage-filled juggernaut going out there, he promotes love. Yes. Like, in the end of the speech... Spike Lee, of course, is like one of those hyper-educated film nerd kind of guys. So he takes this very deliberately. And it's a speech about how love can conquer everything. Yes. And that's placed right in the movie. And if we ever have a part where Spike Lee, the writer, is talking to us, I think it's here. Yes. That anyone, no matter how filled with rage you are, love can conquer that. And I think it's a much more optimistic movie than a lot of people give it credit for. I can see the optimism in, in this movie for sure. And even uh, the mayor, he's promoting love, mother, sister. There's a lot of talk of love and hate in this movie. And being better. Yes. Do the right thing. There's a lot of like, be better. Like when mother, sister, I think she might even say something very close to that to the mayor um, and says. Oh, I believe it's the mayor. Oh, sorry. Da mayor. <laughs> in the credits, I think it is actually D-A. Um. I 
I think at one point she even says, like, you dumb drunk or something like that. And, like, mm-hmm. you can be so much better. Or, like, you should be better or be a better man or something something along those lines. And it was very um, interesting because that is very much something that is played throughout the movie. Like, um, Mookie and his lady, Tina. So, Mookie and Tina. Tina is constantly asking him to be better. Yes. For his son, for her, don't you love me? Don't you love your son? If you go, you're never coming back. It's very much like a be better scenario. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is present with almost all of the people in the movie between like another character in the movie. Like everyone kind of has that be better. Someone's asking them to be better. Definitely. Let's talk about Mookie a little bit. Okay. So he is the protagonist of the movie, I'd argue. It's really... It's an ensemble for sure, but we follow him more than anyone. Is he a hero? No. Is he a good guy? I don't know. Is he a bad guy? I don't I don't know. Yeah. It's another one. There are no heroes and villains in this movie, so it's very hard to tell who is predominantly good or predominantly bad. Because Mookie is not bad in the sense of a lot of these characters are, because he's not a hate-filled person. But he's a bad father. Right. He's a bad boyfriend. Yes. He's selfish. Yes. He's living with his sister instead of trying to help support his child. I believe that's also his real life sister. Is it? I think so. I'm 90% sure. But he is someone who's just looking out for himself. He's looking out for money. It is. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Joy Lee is Spike Lee's sister. And she's really charming in this too. I I liked her her a lot, actually. She was uh, one of the more fun characters to watch. Mm -hmm, Because... She's one, although maybe not the most developed character, but she's probably one of the most purely good characters. There's nothing bad about her. Yeah, But we also don't get to see her nearly as much. No. And I I feel like that's for a reason, because she would make the movie a little bit lighter. Mm, Yeah. Almost, because she is very much a light person, and, like, life may not always be great, but she is very much an optimist and very much a, like, nice character to kind of have in a scene. What do you think drives Mookie? That was one thing that I had trouble kind of figuring out. Me too, because he is, at first I thought he's kind of the blank slate and the audience just puts themselves in there because he's not strong either way. You could just kind of be there. But he seems to be like driven by money more than anything. Because the first time we see him, he's counting money. The last time we see him, he's getting money. Yes. And he's often talking about like, well, when do I get paid? I need to get paid. And that's really his only driving force. Yeah. I don't want to say I felt underwhelmed with that character, but so many times I want to say that there could be so much more right. from the main character of this kind of movie. But maybe that's why it works so well, because he doesn't take these hard stances either way. Right. Everything kind of happens around him. And then when he does turn at the end, it's that much more dramatic. Like if he had been someone Yeah, because he was, doesn't take a side. He works yeah. for the, like... Italian family and he has all of his friends in the black community he's kind most of the time to the like mentally handicapped person he's kind of like friends with everybody almost and then when he does actually pick a side it is like you said it's very shocking to watch let's talk about the plot a little bit because there's really only two big plot moments the rest is characters talking to each other And I thought this movie would be really hard for us to talk about because I just wanted to play a scene and then talk about that for 10 minutes. Now let's play this scene and talk about that because 
every little bit of dialogue is so loaded in mm-hmm. this movie. There's so many references that I think so many get by me and probably get by uh, most of the audience as well. But let's talk about uh, two of the big things. So first of all, we have the first instance when Buggin' Out says, why don't you have any brothers on the wall? He's at cells and it's only Italian-Americans on his little wall of fame. Right. This is one of those like moments in the movie where I f- could see both sides, right? Like it's an Italian pizzeria run by an Italian family. It made sense that there would be Italian Amer- famous Italian-Americans on the wall. But it's in a predominantly black neighborhood, so why wouldn't they have some, like, black celebrities on it? Brothers. (laughs) Yeah, both of their points make sense. And I think that's very intentionally done as well. So first you have Buggin' Out wanting more cheese on his pizza. Yes. He, He gets turned down. And if he wasn't so hot, or if he didn't have that little bit of racism, maybe he wouldn't go like, hey, what's with this wall? Yeah. And after he says that, Sal gives him the explanation, and Buggin' Out stops. He actually stops the argument, turns around, and goes to eat his pizza. At that point, Sal gets a baseball bat. Yes. And says, do you want to start trouble? So Sal escalates this. It was done. It was done. It It was was all over. He had walked away from it and kind of said, okay, fine, like, whatever. And if Sal wasn't so hot, if he wasn't getting badgered by everyone, maybe he wouldn't have done that. Maybe if he didn't have a little bit of racism in him, he wouldn't have done that. But a baseball bat in a pizzeria in New York is a very loaded symbol. Very much It was not too long before this that a group of white men killed a, well, attacked a group of black men and killed, one of them ended up dying with a baseball bat in front of a pizzeria in New York. Oh, shit. The two, three years prior to this, there were numerous accounts of groups of white people attacking and murdering groups of white black people in new york there's names that we see written on walls sometimes and it's these are all real ones i since it was before me i was a a child at the time i don't actually remember many of them but there was the the howard beach incident was uh, probably the one that they are referencing here so the second you have a white man with a bat in a pizzeria in New York going at a black man. This triggers something in the audience of that time. Right. It's it's loaded. It's more than just Sal and Buggin' Out. This right. is bigger than the two of them. Absolutely. And it quickly becomes much bigger than the two of them. I think this whole movie, the brilliance of it is that it is just in this one little corner of the world, a literal street corner, but you can extrapolate from this and talk about race relations in so many different parts of the world. Right. Definitely throughout the United States. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, this could be anywhere. This could be anywhere at any time with any group of people. That's one of the things that I really liked about this movie. Yeah, and I like how they did that where each one of them was willing to let it go at one point. Yes. Sal was willing to let the cheese thing go. Buggin' Out was willing to let this argument go. But little things, everyone gets pushed just a little bit too far. It makes a lot of sense when we see these characters who were, for the most part, quite likable, switching. And then we see them having a racist tirade and people being killed. Like You see how each thing builds upon the other. It's probably the first movie that, even if the term didn't exist at the time, it's the first thing that I remember dealing with microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Like those little things where 
yeah, it's not a big deal on its own, but it's like death by a thousand cuts when you keep hearing the same thing each time. Great Taylor Swift song. Microaggressions? No, death by a thousand cuts. Oh, she invented that term, did she? Yeah, she did. Oh, okay. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> anytime you hear it one time, no big deal, but maybe this is the thousandth time you've heard that. And the person saying it to you doesn't know it's a thousandth time you've heard that, but that's the day you snap. Right. Or you're exhausted and you've had a bad day in another way. And, and it's a hundred degrees and, and it's hundred degrees. Your son's you not sweeping the street in front of your pizzeria. Lose it. When I look at that scene, I always thought it was bugging out that starts everything. And he kind of does, but he lets it go so quickly. And now I look back on it and I was like, well, I think that's kind of shitty of me that I put it on bugging out. All he wanted was like representation. Yes. He wants to see people like him on the wall. Mm -hmm. And that's not a crazy thing. And Sal getting the bat, that's the big step. That is the big step. Sal is like the instigator of this. I didn't remember it that way. But watching it this time, that's what it definitely seemed yeah. like to me. I mean, this conversation between Sal and Bugging Out about the people on the wall could have been like, it wasn't the most heated moment. Like, I didn't feel like it had a lot of emotion and heat behind it. It was the reaction from Sal that gave it heat. Yeah. I feel like we could have had a conversation like that in the kitchen one day and like... Oh, I feel like we've had that conversation on this podcast. I always want representation <laughs> in these movies. And you're like, no, it doesn't matter. And then you get that baseball bat. I don't have a baseball bat. <laughs> no, you just kick me under the table. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> it's not always intentional, though. You accidentally kick me? Yeah, sometimes. No, you say stop and you kick me. I feel like that's <laughs> intentional. Okay, that's intentional. Just like intentional. Sal unintentionally got a baseball bat. And bugging out, wanting a space here, that's more loaded than I think we realize at the time as well. Because like the idea of private property in the civil rights movement was a huge one, right? Mm -hmm. Because when segregation was legally ended, we know it continued for a long time. It continues today. Yes. At the time, one of the ways people were getting around it was saying like, well, I know segregation is illegal, but my pizzeria is segregated because it's private property. No blacks allowed. That's a thing that existed, right? And yeah. the Supreme Court had to overturn that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So this isn't the same. I get that Cell is a part of this community and he's letting all these people in. They grew up on his food and he takes pride in that. Yeah. But he is being, like, exclusive in a way. Very much so, yeah. What did you think about those racist rant scenes? Give me an example. The scenes where a character would talk directly to the camera and just spew all this racist hatred. I found that that made it, like, that really drove home the point and made it very obvious that, like, everyone is racist in this movie and everyone has some kind of prejudice. Mm -hmm. Um and I liked that because it did, it really took away the villain versus hero feeling of it because mm. you kind of learn that like everyone's just kind of a bad person in some way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, so no one is good here. Like you get that like like two, what, two minutes of like movie that it's just like racist slurs to go. And it was really interesting to see that. And it really did drive home the point that nobody's good. Yeah. Nobody's good. Nobody's bad, but like nobody's good. Nobody's a good person in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I liked how they have them speaking directly yes. at the camera. And plus then they're tracking in as well. Because like if this movie's not in your face enough already, you have this coming right at yes. you. And it's loud. 
Yeah, and I wonder how many people realize how true this is. Like, not how true these stereotypes are, but how often people say things like this to people. Yeah. Because I know anytime I tell someone, like, oh, I was just walking down the street and someone told me to go back to a country I'm not from, they go, <laughs> what? Oh my god, I can't believe that happens. And anytime there's a video of that, it goes crazy on Facebook. Yeah. And my comment always, although I don't comment on Facebook stuff because that's trouble. Yeah. My thought always is, like, do you not know this happens constantly? Yeah. Didn't that happen to you in the parking lot of the hospital you were born in? Yes. Somebody with <laughs> an accent from the east coast of Canada, which is like a seven-hour plane ride to where we are, told me to go back to where I came from in the parking lot of the hospital where I was born. And they like... probably had to take two flights to get here it was just too good yeah it's like that is like one of my favorite stories of things that like have been yelled at you yeah and when i tell people they are shocked that this happens but i wonder when people look at this do they look at it as these are like poisoned minds or do they look at it as this is what people say these mm -hmm. are things people believe yeah i think that the world would be a lot better if they took that stance that this movie gives you is that no one's good no one's like inherently bad or evil but like we're not all pristine amazing citizens of the world or at least if people acknowledge the truth in that yes it's a sliding scale you have this level of racism but then you also have the levels that we see in other characters. Like one of my favorite scenes is the scene where Mookie takes Pino aside after he's been saying all of these racist things. He's been using the N-word all over the place. And he says, well, who's your favorite basketball player? And Pino says, Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? He says, well, Eddie Murphy. And he says, who's your favorite singer? And he goes, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, the boss. But he goes, no, it's Prince. And he's like, oh, okay, maybe it's Prince. <laughs> and he goes, like, well, how can you call me the N-word and then you love all these people? And he's like, well, they're, they're better than black. They go beyond that. Hmm. And that is an argument that is so common. People don't always phrase it like that, but that's kind of what they mean a lot of the time. Right. It's a way that racist people like justify that they're not racist. Because they're like, yeah, sure, I don't want any black people on my block, but I like Magic Johnson, so mm -hmm. I'm not racist. Right. I feel like there's a feeling in culture, in like just fame culture kind of thing that, um, once they're famous and rich, they're more like you than they are. They transcend the yeah, race. Yeah, they, they transcend the race. And that's exactly what's true. So they're like, it's like the description of people who are like more white than Asian because they grew up here or like, like you're no longer of that race. Like you can't really identify with that because you've never been to China or like whatever. It's just like, but no, that is still very much their culture and maybe their parents are still very traditional. It's not like just because they grew up in Canada, they don't get to access their culture anymore. Or just because they're rich and famous, that they don't still access their culture and don't still feel like a part of that community. Yeah, and it also reminds me of the type of thinking where people kind of pick and choose what they accept from a culture and what they hate. Yes. So what always bothered me is people who go and get Mindy or um, Henna on their hands, and they're like, oh, I love those Indian suits. I went to an Indian wedding one. It was once. It was so fun. But then in the same breath, they're like, well, if my daughter ever married an Indian guy, that wouldn't fly with me. <laughs> so it's they're like, oh, I'm accepting. I went for Indian food the other day, but 
I want you cooking my food and driving my cab. I don't want you teaching my children or coming over for dinner. Right. Like there's a definite separation there. And those are the types of racists that this movie talks about where it's they're deluding themselves. It's also showing the sliding scale of racism, that it's not those villains that we see in most movies. It's everyday people Mm -hmm. who have those tendencies still. Yes. That brings us to Sal, I think. I think so. So, Sal, is he a racist? I think he's less racist than Pino, but like everyone in this movie, he is a racist to some degree. Is Vito racist? I don't think Vito is. I don't think so. I think Vito is the blank slate that listens to all sides. And if there can be a moral compass in this movie outside of the mayor, maybe it's Vito. Vito is a good guy. He's just a a nice guy. And he just wants to like do right for his father and he wants to just be friends with the people who come into the pizza place he's just a nice guy yeah he's just nice is demir racist doesn't he yell at the korean shop owner i don't think he does at any point does he that would make me feel sad if he did because i feel like he was the one that never did it was the three men on the side that do right yes i think demir isn't super racist well he's definitely not super racist but there's nothing that he did that i can remember at least that shows that he is so you said that sal is but in the sense that everyone is Mm -hmm. so do you you don't think he's like an extra level above or anything no i don't think he i'm just trying to think of when he's like if he's super racist so there was a documentary on the making of this. I saw it when I was a teenager, and I don't remember much. But there's one thing I definitely remember, and that's Danny Aiello, who plays Sal, and Spike Lee, writer-director, talking. And in the scene where he smashes the radio, he uses the N-word. Mm-hmm. He says, turn off that jungle music, and he uses the N-word. Right. For me, that seals it, that yes, he's racist. Right. There's an argument that I hear when someone says something like that. And they're like, oh, well, he was angry and it slipped. If that's not in your vocabulary, if that's not in your thought process, it doesn't just slip. That's what I'm saying. I agree with that. I have never been angry enough to use the N-word ever. I've been in fistfights with people of different races. It never came into my mind that that's what I would call them. I would never, ever think of that as like the first thing that would come out of my mouth. Even the 10th thing that would come out of my mouth. So in this scene in the documentary, Danny Aiello is saying like, oh, I don't think I should say that word. Mm -hmm. And Spike Lee is saying, adamant. He's pretty soft about it, but he's saying like, no, you have to say this. And Danny Aiello says like, but Sal's not a racist. And they're having this back and forth. But what it ultimately comes down to is Spike Lee just goes, he is. Right. Danny Aiello's like, no, he's this loving guy, all of this. And Spike Lee's like, no, he says this word and he is racist. And the truth is that, yes, he is this loving guy. Yes, he's a member of this community and has been doing a lot for the community. Right. And is respectful of the community. And yes, he is racist. Maybe it he is both. has a better handle on it than some of the people in this movie. Definitely. Yeah. And I think he's set up in this way very intentionally because Spike Lee shows you that you're on Danny Aiello's side. You're on Sal's side. He's giving money to the mayor. Yeah. He's uh, nice to everyone. He opens the store so people can come in. He's proud of the fact that this community grew up on his food. 
He takes pride in serving this community. He sounds very, very proud when they're talking about why don't you move to where we actually live. Yeah. So he makes Sal so likable. And that's the power of also showing him to, yes, be racist and have racist tendencies. And it's a really troubling thing for us because we want to associate racism with bad things that bad people do. Mm -hmm. And when we see a mostly good character who also is like this... It doesn't fit into boxes that we have in our minds. And it's troubling. It is. It's really hard to watch Sal take that turn. It is, yeah. And it's like some of the other things, like when Mookie turns, it's shocking. Yes. It's shocking to see him grab that bat. And it's shocking to see him smash the the radio. Like, it's shocking to see him, like, turn on this dime like he's – well-mannered he's polite he's a good shopkeeper because he's like very gregarious and he talks to everyone who comes into his shop and then all of a sudden he just turns and it's very um like almost scary to watch yeah and because he's set up so nicely and because things keep building and building and building you're on board. You're on his side for a lot of the time. Absolutely. Because Radio Rahim's the aggressor, bugging out's the aggressor to start this sequence. Uh huh. And you're on Sal's side. And then when he switches and he says the N word, it makes you stop and think about likable racists and maybe what you have inside of yourself or in your family or group of friends or that's like people a, that you know. That's a really hard thing to do in a film because it's really easy to demonize racism yeah what's hard is to make people introspective about it yeah and that is what is brilliantly done in the character of Sal. absolutely so then let's go through this big climax radio rahim's blasting the music bugging out is yelling danny aiello just can't handle it anymore says those things and smashes the radio and instantly rahim grabs him and pulls him out and you just have everyone yelling, and it's it's madness. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the police are called once this fight stumbles out into the street. And, of course, the police only go after Rahim and Bugging Out. Bugging Out's arrested, and Rahim is, is put into a chokehold. Some police officers are telling the one officer to stop. Yes. He doesn't, and Rahim is killed, and it is a tough thing to watch. It is a very tough thing to watch. That was a very hard scene to watch. And I think, again, by having Rahim as largely an aggressor in this scene. Yes. Being the first one to strike a person, Spike Lee is inviting the audience to say, like, well, see, he started this. He started it. He might deserve it. And that is, like, one of the most troubling arguments I hear so often when police kill unarmed people. They're like, well, he shouldn't have been there at the time. Or, like, they try to use the excuse of, oh, we thought he was reaching for a gun. Or, like... Oh, we thought he was being aggressive. And it's putting attacking Sal on the same level as murder. Because that's what's happened. Rahim is murdered. Absolutely. And those things just aren't equal. And so often we always hear like, well, why was he there? And it's like, just because someone did something wrong doesn't mean that any repercussions against him are justified. Because we always hear like, well, they were in this neighborhood and, oh, he had actually stolen something earlier. So it's like, yeah, but that doesn't make murder justified. No, no. And I think that that is an excuse used too commonly within murder. And within the 
like media conversations about those police killings, Absolutely. which have not changed. No. We are here over 30 years after this movie. And if this came out today, mm-hmm. it would fit right in. And I think it's not just like police officers killing racial minorities and then trying to get away, like trying to use that as an excuse. I think it's in a lot of different narratives. Um, and it can be applied to a lot of different kinds of, like, even just murder. Sure. It's the, like, well, why was she dressed that way? Exactly. It's blaming the victim. And even if someone does something that's kind of wrong, it doesn't mean all of this other stuff is right. And you're missing the point. Exactly. If you're talking about someone... It's like he had it coming. Yeah. You're you're absolutely missing the point of what people are angry about. So if you're saying about this, like... Black Lives Matter or Me Too, if you're looking at like, well, how does this affect me? Yeah. You're not listening. No, you're absolutely not listening. And I think that um, it goes down to something very basic, but like there are two sides to the story, but obviously there is, you know, a truth to the story in one way or another. And it just kind of depends on how deep you're willing to delve into it. What was the, like, the shitty response to the Me Too hashtag, like, not all guys or something like that? You know what I was talking about? Not every man. Not, not every all man or men. not all men or not so all guys. Whatever it yeah, was. it you was guys, something like that. You guys yeah. know what I mean. I feel like that is the equivalent of the negative reviews of this movie. Yeah. Because these people, these reviewers, these... They feel personally attacked because it hits too close to home. Well, this is saying something bad about me. I didn't do this. And just like the people tweeting like, well, not all guys. I'm actually a real nice guy. Yeah. Maybe you are. But you're missing the point. You're not listening. And this movie, I think, really gets your attention. It makes you listen. It absolutely does. So then let's go into the the end. The whole, uh, if this is resolved at all. When Mookie throws the trash can... What did you think about that? It felt like he'd finally picked a side, almost. Because it felt very much like he was in very deep in the black community, but he was also very much devoted to Sal and his family. The last thing that Sal says to Mookie before all this happens is, you're like a son to me. Yeah. And that makes it that much more heart-wrenching he said you always have a job here or something like Mm -hmm. yeah and it just yeah he said he's going to change the name to sal and sons and mookie that means you too you're like a son to me yeah i felt like maybe at that point he felt very much like he needed to pick a side because if he became one of the like sal and sons one of the sons then suddenly he would be pulling away from like his community and i found it very interesting that he finally picked a side and it felt like a an okay resolution almost so do you take it more as he was picking a side because that's kind of like his history is more linked to them than it is to sal what makes him pick that side to you i think it was the killing of his friend yeah i think it was very much the fact that like sal betrayed him in that way and he maybe found it easier in some way to side with his community the narrative around this movie I don't remember when it came out because I was too young, of course, but I remember hearing about it. And a lot of the narrative was about whether or not Mookie does the right thing. Mm -hmm. And Spike Lee, I remember him saying, only white people have ever asked me that. 
Hmm. He said, never has a black or non-white person ever come up to him and it's like, well, does Mookie do the right thing? It was never an issue for any of them. But he said that journalists would often ask him that. And he felt like almost offended by the question because the question is then putting the property of Sal's pizzeria on the same level as a human life. Which is not a good thing to do. Yeah. And (laughs) the movie... It kind of begs you to go that way. It right. makes you think about it, at least. Absolutely. Because it is Mookie, because he has been kind of welcomed into this family, it makes you want to go against him. It makes you want to be on Sal's side. Again, it's flipping you back over to his side. And yes, he didn't kill Rahim. But Mookie is doing this, I felt, out of out of rage, out of loss, out of helplessness. Yeah. Because his friend was murdered and there's nothing he can do about it. Absolutely. And then at this moment, he feels like, this is what I can do. And that's what it came down to for me. Whether it's the right thing, I don't know. Like, that's Mm. probably not. But I see why he did it. Someone died. And that's what it comes down to. And I think a lot of the time, a lot of the conversation about the end of this movie glosses over that. It talks about, well, should he throw that garbage can through a window? And when you think about it, that's so minor. Somebody's dead. Absolutely. And then after all of this, we get kind of like a uh, a little coda, a little denouement. The next day, Mookie comes and he has he has the audacity to ask. He for has money. the balls to say, like, Where, "Where's my money?" I was shocked by that. I was shocked by that. And so again, saying like, "Yeah, Mookie's not a great guy. He's concerned about money, and that's mostly it." But that little back and forth they have is. Uh, I don't know if charming is the right word, but it confuses me. I'm not sure what to make of it, but I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? I don't know. I like. I felt like the. I felt like I understood more of like the midpoints of the movie. The ending was very dramatic, and it was very much like climactic. But I felt like I resonated more with like the midpoints of the movie. So the ending was very much. It's a lot. It comes at you fast. It, and I think that's why it didn't quite resonate as much because it was a very slow build with the with the tensions in the movie. And then all of a sudden it all comes to a head and everything's crazy. And Mookie going and asking for money is just kind of the icing on the cake of a crazy night. And then the last thing I think that they say is like, well, be careful out there. It's going to be real hot today. Yeah. And that kind of just makes you think like, this is just all going to continue. It's not over, yeah. And it's not, because 30 years later... It's still going. Is it any different than this? No. I think... I don't know how you could ever say when things are good and bad, because we always have this idea of like, oh, it's great way back when. But I feel like in 98, that was our best for North American race relations. That was our peak. We've regressed since then. <laughs> now we're back at 89, because this uh... is such a prescient movie. It is. It's very poignant for today's today's situations and problems. Is there a sequel to it? No. Okay. These characters kind of reappear in some other Spike Lee movies. So people okay. say in one point, Spike Lee's character is wearing a Sal's jacket many, many years later in a movie. Oh. In What was that? Red Hook Summer? I don't know. In something. And so it makes you think like... Yeah, 20 years later, Mookie's still working for Sal. Uh-huh. But I think that's like looking too much. Maybe he's just doing like a like a fun homage, perhaps. Callback, yeah. Yeah. I like to think like this is where it ends. Who knows? Yeah, maybe he goes back to work for him. Right. 
Maybe they open up a pizzeria in their own neighborhood. Who Maybe knows? his sons abandon him. What I'd really love to know about if there were a sequel is what happens to Vito. Is this what turns him? Does he join kind of Pino's way of thinking now? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because there's a couple characters that are very like, not innocent, but less combative than he's other pretty people. Innocent. He is. He's a blank slate. He's just taken everything in and he's listening to yeah. whoever is talking to him. And I wonder if this is the one thing that turns him. This movie needs more listeners like Vito. Yeah. Yeah. So any final thoughts? I really enjoyed this movie. That's my final thought. I really enjoyed this conversation. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Um, even my raspy voice. Especially a raspy voice. <laughs> there was a couple points in this that I wasn't sure that my voice was actually going to hold out much longer. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you for making me see this movie. You're welcome. I got more where that came from. Oh, good. Okay. I'm ready. But before we go and run off and watch another Spike Lee movie, do you have any final thoughts on this one? Yeah, watch it is my biggest thing. (laughs) Go out there and watch it. This is a good movie. People need to see stuff like that. This is a movie that refuses to fall within the conventions of good and evil that we crave. It's complex and dirty and uncomfortable and real. It's honest and true and that's what we need in filmmaking. I feel like when you rely on those conventions, you're happy. You enjoy those movies, but you're largely unchanged. Right. Like, I love A New Hope. Did it change me as a person? No, it changed me as a film viewer for sure. Yeah. But it doesn't question your belief system or make you reflect on it. Absolutely. And very few movies do. This is one of those movies. Go watch it. Well, before we go, Sam, can you do one thing for me? Yes, Always do the right thing. (laughs) Excellent. I plan on it. You're supposed to go, that's it? And I go, that's it. And you go, I got it. I'm gone. Later, bitches. (laughs) That's a good one. That's going to be the drop at the end. Excellent. Okay.